Thanks for joining us at Faith Bible Chapel. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and brings you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service, find a small group, or simply find out more about the church, stop by our website at www.faith.church. Hey, this morning, our theme is this. and You can look at it on your notes there in front of you. We are designed and purposed for healthy relationships. We are designed and purposed for healthy relationships. And I'm going to begin right at the beginning in the book of Genesis. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, it may be different to the one you have or the one in front of you. Uh, if you want, there's a great app uh, on the Bible app that you can get on your smartphone or device which has every version. So that's a great app. But you can follow along if you have it in New Living, otherwise you'll get the gist of it in whatever version you're reading from. So if I go to Genesis chapter one and verse one, it says this, in the beginning, God. And then it goes on to say God did stuff, but right there I wanna stop. In the beginning, God. And when I refer to God in this context, I want you to understand the, the, broad, the, the broad statement of who God is because God right here is God in his totality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when we look through the scriptures, you will find continually, and it really comes to light in the New Testament when, when Jesus comes into the midst of humanity and then when Jesus imparts the Holy Spirit, they're, they're not new manifestations, they have always been. But what you begin to see as we see the New Testament and look back over the Old Testament, that God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are continually affirming and deferring to one another. And you see it particularly in the New Testament where uh, Jesus at his baptism. Jesus is baptized, comes out of the water, and it says, a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes on to say, and you would do well to listen to him. And so God the Father affirms and defers to the authority of his son. Jesus later on does the same thing with the spirit. Jesus who has been and is the revelation of God says, and I will not leave you alone. I will send you one greater than myself who will lead you into all truth and remind you of everything I've said. And Jesus affirms and defers to the Spirit. But we also know that the Scriptures say that no one even comes to the Father unless what? The Spirit draws him. And so there is this incredible relating that goes on. And so your first notes there, I would ask you to write this. Our God is a God of interpersonal relationship. And you'll see that in a few moments when we come a little deeper into chapter one. But God's very nature is an us-ness. That's spelled U-S-N-E-S-S, us-ness. It's a fabulous word, very popular word in Australia. 
That's not true. I just made it up because it sounds good. Usness, or another word, togetherness, the togetherness of God, the, the completeness of God, the wholeness of God, the interpersonal relating of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the complexity of God created. God created. And so we go a little deeper into Genesis chapter 1. It says the earth was formless and it was empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then in verse 3, it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God saw, verse 4, that the light was good. Now, that word good, what does it speak to you? Because I've read this account so many times that I read it like this. The God said, let there be light, and God saw that the light was good. I don't think it was that casual. You see, good has this ability to take on a different emphasis in the way that we say it, does it not? Man, something's good. That was good. That was, and good, if you say something was good, it can almost mean, yeah, that was okay. Yeah, that was good. Or it can go to this other end of the spectrum and you, you just got this emphatic sense of, oh, that was, that was good, that was good. Well, I wonder what you hear when you read this in Genesis, that God said, let there be light, and then he saw that that light was, yeah, was good. Like, I, I wonder what it would be like if, if we were there. And all of a sudden, into the nothingness, into this void, into this darkness, into this space, formlessness, God just goes, let there be light. And you'd just be like, oh, that was good. That was good. Do that again. And then God would sort of look at you like, what? Do that again? I just, there's light now. No, I, I don't know. But that's sort of what happens when something is good. You're like, come on, let's do that again. There's something powerful about it. But God doesn't stop there with let there be light and that light was good. It says now... Let there be space between the waters to separate the waters, the heavens and the waters of the earth. And it's what happened. And then he goes on and says, and now let there be land. Let the waters pull back. And so God creates sky and land and sea. And then again, he looks at it and he says, it is, he did not. He did not say, and it was good. 
He said, it's good. It is good. How good? No, no, no. He doesn't say very good yet. He just says, good. But there's an emphasis to it. There's a strength to it. Like there is this revelatory passion about it that it is good. And then he's not finished. Then he says, now let there be, let there be plants. And now God says, and with these plants, they're going to be seed bearing and they can reproduce in their like kind. And it, and it begins to multiply and grow. And then God says, and it is good. We're getting it. Man, it's good. And then he says, now let there be heavens and sun and moon stars and the deeper we go into space with our telescopes the more incredible and bigger and grander and gooder it gets that's another very popular word in Australia there's good and there's gooder and there's goodest and this this the thing the deeper we look into the heavens the richer and gooder it becomes I don't know how often you look up. I am a perpetual upper looker. And I marvel at the heavens. I marvel at the stars. One of my favorite constellations is the giant scorpion. How often do you look up and see the giant scorpion? It's only in the skies in certain seasons, but it's phenomenal. And right in the middle of the scorpion, there's this little orange dot. And some people mistake that little orange dot for Mars, but it's not Mars. It's much gooder than Mars. Or better, if you like that word, better. It's a star that's called Antares. And Antares is one of the bigger of the big stars in our night sky. And it's a pinprick, but it's about 400 times the size of our own sun. It's enormous, and yet we hardly ever even notice it. And yet God created and said, let there be planets and galaxies and solar systems, and sun, and moon, and, and, and the things they're discovering are incredible. Like there are whole galaxies just like plowing into one another. And God's like, this, this is good. But we miss the wonder so often. And this is just the creation part of it. God says all of that sun, and moon, and stars, and planets is good, but then he says, man, more more life, let there be birds and let there be fish and let them all reproduce in like kind and, and that all explodes and happens and he says, this is good. And then he says, now let there be animals of all sorts of kinds, big and small and running and scurrying and then he looks at it all and goes, and this, this is good. 
It's okay if you don't want to say, good, you can just say, good. You know what you mean inside you. I won't try and interpret it. But he says, it's good, it's life. But then what happens is you come to this place that God as creator has declared everything he did as good. Write it down. And how you write it down is up to you. But I think the letters should be really big and really bold. With flashes coming out from around it. And arrows pointing at it. But you can do what you want. But you come to this point now, we're at Genesis 1.26, and in Genesis 1.26, it said, Then God said, Let us make mankind or human beings in our image to be like us. Let us make man in our image to be like us. Do you see something? The us-ness of God, the togetherness of God, the interpersonal relating of God, and we are made in his image to be interpersonal and relating human beings created like him. This is what we're created for, to be in that image. And it is now in that creation of man. If you jump to verse 31, he looks at all of it. And in the culmination, it comes to this point that God looks at it and then says, it is very good. It is exceptionally good. And you continue reading and God begins to engage with Adam And you see them looking at creation and going through creation and plants in the garden and the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and naming animals. And it's an amazing time. But then you come to the place that God says for the first time, it's not good. And I want you to look at where he says it. In verse 18 of chapter 2, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for mankind to be out of relationship. It is not good for mankind to be out of companionship. It is not good for mankind to be out of created order. It is not good for us to be isolated. We were never created for isolation but rather togetherness. Togetherness with God and togetherness with one another. This is the design of God. And you see, we have an enemy who wants to continually break that down. He wants to tear it up. It was Jesus who said, man, there's one purpose of the enemy, and that is to kill and to steal and to destroy, to break down those things that God has called good and relationships and what he goes after intently and intentionally. 
And my belief is this, that we are never created to just be accidental relators. I believe we're designed to be intentional in the way we relate. You see, when we believed the lie of the enemy, the lie was really simply this, that God the creator is withholding some of his goodness from you. That's the lie. In all of the, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, the enemy comes and goes, well, there's something a little better. And that would be if you were self-governing. And the lie is that God has withheld some of his goodness from you. How many of us here have ever been deceived for a moment into believing God has withheld some of his goodness from you? Maybe you don't want to wave. But man, we go through crisis, we go through trouble, we go through sickness, we go through whatever. And we start going, hey, it's you. It's your fault, God. Where have you gone? Why have you done that to me? And and, and this is the lie. God is somehow withholding some of his goodness from you. And they were deceived into believing it, and it led to shame and to blame. And the moment that mankind has entered into this deception, they know it. And shame just comes over them. And shame is an incredibly powerful thing. And it will keep you from relating with God and it will keep us from relating with one another. This is very real to me. I'm not talking in theory here. When my daughter and her husband told me that they were pregnant and I was going to be a granddad. Man, I just was so elated. And to be a grandpa for the last week has just been incredible. And, and incredibly redemptive because, you see, we all have stories. And there was a part of my story that just I would have been happy to have left hidden forever because shame is this thing where you just want to hide and I knew that I had to break the power of it because the thing is the enemy comes after you and he uses God's word to intimidate you I don't know if you've ever had God's word used against you Jesus had it happen to him in the great temptations in the the desert. Didn't God say? But the moment I knew that I had the potential of being a granddad and I knew my own story, the first things, the words I heard were God will visit the sins of the fathers upon their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I immediately 
this, this shame, this fear overcomes me and I just started going, God, like I know you're not like that, but please don't be like that. And, and, and I knew I could either cower under this story and this history or I had to go and sit with my daughter and my son-in-law who has only known me in recent years and then my own son and say, guys, this, this is who I am. But I don't want to live subject to shame. But you see, shame, if we don't deal with it, we want someone to blame. And this is what Adam, and, and Adam does first. He doesn't just blame Eve. He just flat out blames God. Yeah, well, it was this woman, but you see, God, it was this woman that you gave me, so it was your bad idea to start with. Like, that's what he says. I kind of like that God doesn't even bother to answer him. I'd like to have seen the look on God's face that he gave him. It's like that. Really? Are we going there? And God doesn't even bother. But he just realizes that this shame that has happened, now they're just looking for someone to blame. Adam and Eve hide in shame from God and they cover up their sexuality and they hide from one another. And that has just been this perpetual state of humanity ever since. But you see, God is not content with that shame and blame and separation. He never has been, he never will be. He doesn't want us to remain in that state. And seeing right there, it is not good to be soul lonely. What do I mean by soul lonely? I mean this, that there is this part in us that as Adam and Eve knew there had been a wall of separation built between them and their intimacy with God, something in us knows that. I wonder if I ask you a question this morning, how would you respond? And this is just for you right now. Are you soul lonely? Is there a longing deep inside of you that you are trying to satisfy? And maybe you're here in this church gathering this morning because you're looking for something to meet this soul loneliness. And I'm here to tell you, church isn't going to do it. The only thing that will do it is for us to reconcile with God. That's it. You've got to be reconciled to God, and I'm going to walk you through it. But I ask you, is soul lonely? Because God knows that first and foremost, we were created in his image to be like him, in usness and togetherness with him. And so God, the creator, doesn't remove himself, though he had every right to. He could have just, I'm done. I didn't need this. No, he wades into it. And God the creator becomes God the pursuer who walks into the garden and says, where are you? 
And as we know, God didn't need to know where they were. He already knew where they were. He's asking this resonating question so that it resonates within the new void in their hearts. Where are you? Why have you hidden yourselves? What are you running from? Because it's this revelation that they don't really know the heart of their creator, but he becomes this pursuer. He pursued Adam and Eve and he pursues us to this day. Maybe you've heard that resonating, where are you? That's why you're here. But he doesn't just become the pursuer. He becomes the revealer. Last week, one of the things that Jason spoke about was living a life of, of transparency. And God, the revealer, he doesn't just say, oh, you didn't know me? Fine, you'll never know me. He says, you didn't know me? Then let me introduce myself to you. And God, throughout the timeline of humanity, continues to reveal himself to people. He pursues us and he reveals himself to us. He revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, a God of covenant. He revealed himself to a people. He revealed himself in his fullness in Jesus. He reveals himself in his word. He is a revealer. It's not just to to remind us of our separation from him. He reveals himself that we might know him and then he moves from being God the revealer to being God the restorer. He's a restorer of hope, of promise, of dignity, of life. And God doesn't just want us to restore life that we can live better. He wants the relationship with him restored. And so God becomes the reconciler. God the creator becomes God the pursuer becomes God the revealer, becomes God the restorer, becomes God the reconciler. That he's never okay with separation and brokenness and this is the power of forgiveness to heal. That though we were once God's enemies, without hope, he reconciled us to himself. He was willing to forgive us of all our sin, of all our failings, of all our unrighteousness, and he did this and revealed the fullness of it in his son, Jesus. Never belittle nor underestimate the power of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for sin. It breaks the power of sin. It makes real living togetherness possible. Togetherness and acceptance continue to break the power of shame and blame and separation. Let me say that again. Togetherness and acceptance continues to break the power of shame and blame and separation. Jesus came to give us life and give us life to the full, but that is not just for our own gratification. It is so that we become a part of his declaration of himself in a community of togetherness that brings revelation of what reconciliation looks like. That's God's purpose. And we are to be a part of it. And I would say this too, as much as it's not good to be soul lonely, 
It is not good to be socially lonely. We need one another. And the church is a good place for that. Only God in his son Jesus reconciles the soul loneliness. The church can help with the social loneliness. In fact, I have a friend who is doing a doctorate in the study of loneliness and the epidemic of loneliness in our world today. But what she says is this, as much as we see loneliness as a bad thing, loneliness is a good thing if we engage it for the reason it exists. As much as hunger should drive you to food and thirst should drive you to water, loneliness should drive us to community. The sense of loneliness just tells you that there is a social lack. And you've got to resolve it. You see, God's purpose is that we, in turn, remember we were created to be like him? Do you remember that? Hello? Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, we're created to be like him. So therefore, having been created and having been restored, we should become the pursuers. And and we should in turn become the revealers. The revealers of what God is like and what godly community looks like. And we should be the restorers. And we should be the ones who pursue reconciliation. It begins with us as individuals. The work of healthy relating begins with you. It begins with me. And you've got to realize it. There's so much in Scripture that tells us that we, we've got to realize that we're loved so that in turn we can love. We've got to realize that we're forgiven so that in turn we can forgive. We've got to realize that we are reconciled to the Father and therefore we can be agents of that reconciliation. There's so many things in the New Testament about these one another's and it's my responsibility to engage them. I like the one that says greet one another with a holy kiss. Pucker up. But it's holy. There's a, there's a purity to the way we relate. But it doesn't end with just us. In Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about what it is for us to realize that restoration and reconciliation and then begin to live it. In Ephesians 4, you see, we're told that it continues in us as the church. Begins with us as individuals, but it continues in us as the church. Paul writes this, man, I urge you, and I echo his words, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. 
Be completely humble and gentle, patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is but one body and one Spirit. And you are called to one hope when you are called. And one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And we are engaged in this oneness. And the church should be this beautiful illustration of oneness. We've got to work towards that continually. And in Ephesians 2, he says this, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in transgression. It's by his grace you're saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated him in the heavenly realms in order, listen to this, that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindnesses to us. We should be the expression of his kindnesses, of his grace, of his reconciliation, of his goodness. And we should be that expression to this world around us because thirdly, that work of healthy relating works through us as Christ's ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, that we are ambassadors of God in Christ with this cry that says, be reconciled to God. We should be the living example of it. The church is designed to be an illustration to the world of restored life, of harmonious and generous living, of the unity of the body and the work of the spirit. That's what the church should be. When you look at what happened in the early church, it says, man, they grew in favor with with each other and with the community around them. People in the community were just going, oh my goodness, we've never seen anything like this before. I want to be a part of that. And thousands get saved in a day because there is such a newness to what love and reconciliation and restoration and grace looks like. And our lives become this ambassadorial statement. It says, come on, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. You see, Ephesians 2 says this, through his own sacrifice, Jesus broke down the walls of hostility that existed. Paul says this, for he himself is our peace. Have you made peace with God in his son Jesus? Because if you haven't, you cannot enter into this. And God longs for you. You know, God really genuinely loves you. He might not like everything you're doing, but he loves you. I had a dad, I have a dad. I was a punk kid. And I came to my dad because he's artistic and and my dad's also a pastor. And I said, dad, I want a big spider web shaved on my head. Can you do that for me? And my dad, he said, yeah, I can do that for you. And my dad got these clippers and he shaved this fantastic spiderweb in my head. I still have a picture of it. But you know what my dad said to me while he was shaving it? And I think 
He probably took the time to shave it because he had a captive audience. I wasn't leaving with a half spider web. But he said to me this, he said, Tim, I love you. I don't like everything you're doing with your life right now. But I want you to know I love you. And when I came to my faith in Jesus, I realized that God had used my dad to speak the reality of his heart for me. And I heard it afresh again, that God's like, Tim, I love you. Hey, there's some, there's some stuff we gotta deal with in your life. I was gonna use the word crap, but that's offensive to some people. There's some stuff in your life that we gotta deal with. But in the meantime, no, I love you. Do you need to hear that today? You got shame, you're hiding it, you're blaming someone, it's this, that person's fault, they did it. Are you willing to hear God say, hey, listen, I want you to know, stop everything, I love you. There's some stuff we gotta deal with. But we'll deal with it in the knowledge that I love you. And that's been my journey. And I'm not there yet. And I don't always enjoy it. Let's be honest. But he has invited us to get beyond the hostility that existed between him and us and us and others. You see, Jesus broke down the walls of hostility. And the church should not be about who we stand against. I like Billy Graham said this, I want to be known for what I am for more than what I'm against. None of us would have relationship with God if God just stepped in and said, hey, I want you to know what I'm against. He didn't. He started by coming and saying, I'm for you. It's stuff we've got to deal with, but I'm for you. Who are the people that you want shut out? Okay, let's get real for a moment here. Are there people that you go, hey, they have no place here? If there are, we don't get the point that Paul is reiterating in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says Jesus went to the cross that the walls of hostility would be broken down. You and I were both enemies of God at one point. He pursued us. He revealed himself to us. He restored us and he reconciled us. It's not easy. The stuff that has to be dealt with. But I want to be an agent of reconciliation. I want to be an engager of grace. I want to be an enactor of restoration and reconciliation. And I pray we do as the church. Because your last point there, and I want you to write it down, but I want you to think about it as you do. Relationships will never thrive in a culture of fear. Our relationships will never 
thrive with one another when we're afraid of one another. Our relationships as ambassadors with this world will never thrive while we live in a culture of we're so afraid of what they might do or what they might bring to me or what they might influence me with. I believe this, that the power of Christ in me is greater than anything in this world. I believe that, I really do. We need to walk wisely, absolutely. We need to walk circumspectly, absolutely we do. There is evil in the world, and there is evil afoot, but we have a commission as ambassadors of Christ to restore and to reconcile and to forgive and to see his kingdom come and his will done. Because I tell you this, love triumphs over fear. And when we know we are loved, we can love. And when we know we are forgiven, we can forgive. And when we know we've been reconciled, we can be agents of reconciliation. Relationships should be good. They should be godly. And they should be life-giving. We hope you enjoyed the message. If you'd like to watch a service live online, you can join us every Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at live.faith.church. For everything else, check our website at www.faith.church.